This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming out to uh, see me and, and hear me this morning. Uh, it is so great to be here. I want to say I'm back home, but I'm not because home is wherever Julie, Madeline, and David Paul are, and they are 10,000 miles away. So it's great to be back in Knoxville, and uh, we look forward to eventually all of us coming back home and resuming our, I guess, normal life back here uh, in Knoxville. But uh, for now, I'm so grateful that you all came uh, to listen about this, this country that I've, all of us have grown to love over the last seven or eight months. And it was a country that this time last year, I didn't even know where it was. Uh, so don't feel uh, ashamed if you're wondering where in the world is Timor-Leste because uh, I was saying the same thing. But it is a lovely country uh, with wonderful people like Domingos, uh, very generous, very friendly people, uh, despite the poverty, despite the hardship that they have. Um, so what I want to talk about this morning is uh, just give you a little background about Timor-Leste, and I'll, I'll do it again, uh, but in a more abbreviated session. So thank you for coming uh, here because you'll get a little bit more detail uh, and you'll have a little bit more of an understanding when I uh, address the, the church at 10. So anybody recognize this beautiful lady here? Uh, you're probably not going to recognize her when you see her uh, because she's just grown so big, but this is Madeline. And this is uh, a beach not far from where we live. Uh, and there's a sign that says, I love Timor-Leste, and, and we do. So where in the world is Timor-Leste? Well, it is almost 10,000 miles away from where we are right now. If you were to look at a globe, uh, the only other major city that's further than the country of Timor-Leste from Knoxville is the city of Perth in Western Australia, which is right here. So. Um, it's about 10,000 miles, and they're 13 hours ahead of us. So uh, there's that whole time travel deal. Julie uh, sent me a, a, we use WhatsApp. Um, it was a, a app that I'd never heard of before, but everybody uses it overseas. And uh, they've already been to church this morning, and, and so it's, it's odd. They're actually getting ready to go to sleep now on Sunday night and get ready for the work day on Monday. But it is... It is a long journey. Um, it took us about 27 hours to get here. Uh, when we left on Thursday, we flew from uh, the capital city of Dili <coughs> to Bali, Indonesia, and then we flew to Seoul, uh, where we thought we were gonna have an 80-minute layover, but it turned over into an eight-hour layover because the crew wasn't ready. And then we made the long journey to Detroit and then here. So uh, it's very strenuous travel, and so forgive me, I'm it's a, a little loopy for me still coming off that, that type of travel, but Timor-Leste is a very unique country. Um, they are 17 years young. They uh, were colonized by the Portuguese for about 500 years. Uh, Portugal eventually left, and when Portugal left, uh, the Indonesians, who they share a land border, this is the Indonesian archipelago here. The Indonesia consists of about 14,000 islands. And at the end of the archipelago is the nation of Timor-Leste. Uh, in the 1970s, when Portugal left, Indonesia attempted to annex 
Timor-Leste, and it was a violent and bloody and deadly annexation that lasted for about 24 years. And uh, when I learned about their history, and the more I learn about it, the more respect and admiration I have for the resiliency of the Timorese people. Um, 250,000 Timorese died at the hands of the Indonesians during that time period. They were forced from their homes uh, up into the mountains where they lived off of the land, and it wasn't like nice gardens. It was tree bark and, and whatever they could find, but they fought. If you think about fighting for 24 years, uh, they emerged uh, and declared their independence, and they've been an independent country now for 17 years. So just take a moment and ponder that of what it would be like to be in a country that is 17 years old. Think about what our country would have been like at 17 years old. Um, there's hardship there. There's things that uh, don't work quite right. Uh, roads, infrastructure, uh, some of it is lacking uh, significantly in some places. But again, it's a country that's been around for only 17 years, standing on its own two feet. Uh, but they are a determined, resilient people. And uh, it's, it's, it's such a joy for me to be there at this time in their history, to be part of a country to help them. And what my job is, a lot of you know I'm a, a federal prosecutor here in Knoxville. I've been here for about 12 years uh, as an assistant U.S. attorney. Um, within the U.S. Department of Justice, they have an international program where they send experienced federal prosecutors overseas to places like Timor-Leste for one to two years at a time. And the sole function is for that resident legal advisor, that's my title, uh, the RLA is to help the local criminal justice sector. So I help Timorese judges, Timorese prosecutors, Timorese police. I help them set up a judicial system that is based on the rule of law and not the rule of man. Um, the rule of law is important. We have a, a rule of law here. Uh, I, I help them with uh, targeting specific criminal threats that are unique to their region. And the two that I focus on the most are human trafficking and anti-corruption uh, within the government. So it, you, you, you've got corruption issues whenever you've got a, a young country and you, the corruption issues never go away because it's a man-based system and we've got this sin that we're born with and, uh, and it, it stays. And so we, we try and, I try and help them root that out uh, so that the Timorese people can have confidence in their, their, in their country, in their government. Um, so helping the judges, helping the police, helping the prosecutors with their few in number, the resources and equipment that they lack is astounding uh, for me when I look at it. Uh, the poverty that we see, that Julie and the kids see, is unlike anything you've ever seen here. And what we uh, appreciate most and are just so taken back by is you see this poverty and then as stark contrast to the attitude of the people. The people live in this impoverished state, but you would never know it from their attitude. They are joyful. They smile. They are so generous. They will give you what little they have. Um, and for us to see that and, and to, to leave America and, and see that type of gratefulness, that resiliency is really encouraging for us and it, it causes us to stop and think. Um, you know, for, for food, uh, 
over there, there's little markets and we usually have to go to three or four different stores to cobble together ingredients to make meals. You know, you can get butter at this store, but only this store. You can get milk at this store and only this store on the other side of the town. And then all of that is governed by whatever came in on the ship. And so there was four months with no butter. Um, and so Julie and David Paul, all of a sudden they say, wow, you know, we had an Ingalls and a Kroger five minutes away. Then we walk in that store and the shelves are full and it's everything. And us going to those markets, um, you know, the Timorese, the mo vast majority of them aren't going even to those meager markets. It's, it's mostly the uh, foreign service people that are there. Um, so I say all that to just reinforce how grateful we should all be in our hearts that, uh, you know, we were born in this country at this time in history. Um, you don't have to worry about food not being on shelves and things like that. I mean, we are, we are so blessed and going to a place like Timor-Leste really drives that home. Um, there's other interesting things. So uh, you've got saltwater crocodiles, which are indigenous to the region. Um, they do turn up on beaches and uh, they are ambush hunters and uh, People do get, uh, the Timorese say they get taken. People get taken by crocodiles. In other words, they get killed. Um, but we had a, a fisherman, a spear fisherman, uh, just in May, um, got taken. This uh, particular crocodile that you see is kept behind this very sturdy chain link fence. <laughs> this is uh, the police headquarters in the capital city of Dili. Uh, and y you can walk right up and I, ha I happened to be there that day. I brought a federal judge over and I took him to see this crocodile, which is named Antonio. And um, we walked up and uh, we walked right up to the fence and, and the judge was there with me. And I said, oh, Judge Varlin, I'm sorry. I, you know, he's normally out. I don't know where he is. And I turned my back to the fence to look at the judge. And he said, whoa. And Antonio just came out of the water and opened his mouth like that. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's, there's that, which you don't see here. Um, this is a monkey on a motorcycle. Um, I was in the car with Madeline. We were at a stoplight, and she said, look at that. And I look over, and we saw that. And I said, hey, quick, take a picture. So, you know, where else are you going to see a monkey uh, directing a motorbike on the main road there? Um, this is the type of markets that you will see. Uh, the, the fruits and vegetables are, are great um, when they're out, but this is, this is a typical um, market where you, you go and you, the sellers are there and the buyers come up and those big crates that you see, these are shipping containers. And that's what the country depends on. Uh, if you're getting any meat from Australia or New Zealand, uh, if it's not on the crate, you don't have it. Um, so a lot of it is subsistence farming. Uh, they make the best use of the land that they have. They make the best use of the sea. So uh, there's fishermen that will go fish and then you see them uh, with banana leaves with about 10 to 15 fish tied on a banana leaf. I have no idea how they do it, but they walk and they sell it to people uh, right there on the, on the street. So they make their way uh, as best they can. And again, it's just they do it with a smile. And that's probably the one thing that I've taken with me uh, after these seven months is um, 
getting past the poverty, getting past the why, why is this happening to me? Why don't we have X, Y, or Z? I just think of, of people like the Timorites and uh, my, my friend Domingos uh, has been such a wonderful help and guide to someone who is new to this land. Um, Domingos has three boys, 10, 8, and 5, and his wife is pregnant with their fourth. They're really praying for a girl. Um, so we've gotten to know his family, and it's just been, just been wonderful. And Domingos will come up and, and say a few words at the end of this session. So with that context for you, we can talk about human trafficking. You know, a lot of us hear about human trafficking. You hear it on the news. You see it in movies. Um, but do we really know what it is? What does it mean to be engaged in human trafficking or be a victim of human trafficking? What's the difference between human trafficking and human smuggling? There are big differences there, and getting that distinction right can mean life or death for some victims. So what I have on the screen here is the Trafficking in Persons Report, or TIP Report, T-I-P, TIP Report. Uh, it's produced every year by the U.S. Department of State, and they do a survey of every country in the world that will provide data. So there are some countries for which we have no data, North Korea, Iran, uh, some, a few other places. But it's a pretty comprehensive report that gives an outline of the state of affairs of human trafficking in the countries. And um, this map that you see, you can see that there, there are no borders. Human traffickers don't recognize state sovereignty. They don't respect borders. Um, it is truly a global problem, a global crime that affects every nation on earth. Um, I was a drug prosecutor here uh, in Knoxville, and so I dealt with drug trafficking, the movement of illegal narcotics, and seeing that what's being moved are not drugs or products, but people. That was eye-opening for me. And to see it on this front line um, in, in a nation that has uh, so many shipping containers. You saw those containers. Um, it's not uncommon to have people in those that are being moved from different countries that have been taken from other places, either forcibly against their will or under false pretenses. And um, it's, it's everywhere. And it's small children. It's elderly. It, human trafficking doesn't respect uh, race, gender, ethnicity, age, uh, it does tend to favor the poor, meaning the poor are usually the ones that are targeted. Um, right now, there's about 25 million adults and children worldwide that are current victims. As we sit here right now in Knoxville, 25 million somewhere in the globe are either being trafficked or are uh, at a place and, and um, being forced labor forced uh, sex trafficking right now. So that's, that's a lot of people. I want to read something uh, of what the United Nations says. Uh, and it's not in your material, and I, I purposefully left it out of the material because I want you, we're going to come back at the end. But here's what the UN says. It says that human traffickers prey on people who are poor, isolated, and weak. Poor, isolated, and weak. Issues such as disempowerment, Social exclusion and economic vulnerability are the result of policies and practices 
that marginalize entire groups of people and make them particularly vulnerable to being trafficked. So think about those phrases. Who are the people that are being targeted? The poor, the isolated, the weak. Why do people get targeted and become victimized uh, in human trafficking? Well, the UN talks about things like disempowerment, social exclusion, and economic vulnerability. There's truth to that, but at the end, I'm going to argue that um, while they are right superficially, the underlying reasons are not what the UN says they are, but we'll talk about that. So think about uh, those people, poor, isolated, and weak. So my, the question for us today is how can the church help? Um, I'm overseas helping sort of the people on the front line, the judges, the police, the prosecutors, the border patrol agents that are dealing with very porous borders and they don't know if this is a family, uh, what this person says these children are, is it true? Are these children really this man's uh, body of nephews and nieces or is it something far more sinister? This is happening every moment of every day on, on the borders uh, that they share with Indonesia and in the ports that are all over Southeast Asia that come through Timor-Leste. So let's start with um, how do we think about victims? We talk about victims, and I just mentioned a staggering number, 25 million victims. But for the church, I would suggest that you think of it in terms of Genesis 1. They are people. And what does God say people are? There are people that he has made in his own image. So instead of saying victims, because that tends to become a very um, generic phrase that's hard to put real people under that moniker of victims, think of them as image bearers from all over the world, image bearers that God made in his image that are being trafficked. So let's start with defining our terms. I think the best way is to look at the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000. This is a U.S. statute passed by the Congress uh, in 2000, and it defines severe forms of trafficking. The first that we see a lot, that a lot of people tend to think about when you watch Liam Neeson movies and things like that, are sex trafficking. And that's defined as uh, commercial sex acts that are induced by force, fraud, or coercion or in which the person induced to perform such an act has not achieved the age of 18 majority. And sadly, we see very, very young boys and girls that fall into this category. They're, they're years and years away from 18. The other big one that we see is labor, forced labor. And that is recruitment, harboring, transportation, or provision of obtaining a person for labor for services. Again, through the use of Ford, uh, uh, fraud, force, or coercion, uh, and it's involuntary. We see this with domestic help, house cleaners. We see it a lot in construction um, in, in various countries, building projects, road projects. You s we see people on the road. The vast majority of those people have been lured away from, say, India, or China, um, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Timor-Leste, citizens get recruited to those countries as well. It, is, it can be, human trafficking can be a very, um, I guess, incestuous type of crime. People go all over to other countries and fall into these two categories. So I talked about human trafficking versus human smuggling. So let's just talk about those differences uh, quickly. Trafficking 
focuses on people or victims. Again, my argument is that they're, they're image bearers. Smuggling focuses on the laws of a state or a country, primarily their immigration laws, their border laws. Trafficking is a violation of the human rights of human beings. Smuggling, in contrast, is the violation of state or national laws regarding sovereignty. The common features that are applicable to both are you've got recruitment to some degree, a trafficker, or in smuggling they are called coyotes. Uh, they will recruit people. Uh, they transport people. And you've got illegal border crossings, typically in both smuggling and trafficking and you also have ill treatment in route so some of the differences trafficked victims human traffickers do not pay money in advance or i'm sorry the, the trafficked victims they don't pay money in advance in fact sometimes they're not wanting to leave their home but they are taken against their will um, trafficked victims are nor, uh, delib deliberately targeted and, and recruited so you can have a scenario where they are just being kidnapped but you also have scenarios where they're already poor, uh, socially vulnerable, economically at risk, and a trafficker will come up with a silver serpent-like tongue and say, hey, I've got an opportunity for you. And it's all lies. They talk about education in other countries. They talk about work in the hospitality industry in other countries. Just come with me, give me your passport, and they're gone. They can't travel anymore because they don't have a passport that's been taken from them. Um, smuggling, we typically see a lot, is where people really want to leave their country and they want to bypass the laws of the country in which they're wanting to enter. And so they pay money to a coyote who has a van or a truck and these people load up into the trucks and they get smuggled across the border. We see this typically here in our country with our, the land border that we share with Mexico. So the critical distinction is the intention of the drug trafficker versus the, uh, I'm sorry, the human trafficker and the, the human smuggler. For the smuggler, money is paid up front uh, in order to facilitate that movement from one country to another. And once that movement has been achieved, that relationship between the trafficker or the smuggler and the people being smuggled ends. The people get over on the other side of the border and they're gone. For human trafficking, it's different. Uh, the illegal entry stage is actually the second phase of human trafficking, where they're actually crossing borders. What you have is a uh, fraud, coercion, or force uh, taken by the human trafficker and getting people into his command and control, if you will. And they cross the border, but the relationship doesn't stop there. They deliver them to houses, uh, businesses, places where they're either going to be sex trafficked or forced labor. And that's an ongoing, um, it's essentially slavery. And those people go to that place and they're not allowed to leave. And the reason why it's critical that you understand the difference between smuggling and trafficking is uh, in a phrase, victim identification. The smuggled people are different, I would say, qualitatively and quantitatively different than trafficked individuals. It's the trafficked individuals that we're really focusing on because those are the people that are going to be suffering the physical, sexual, uh, psychological abuse, and they're the ones that need the most help. 
and it, you've got to understand that difference uh, between smuggling and trafficking so that you can identify those victims and get them the help that they need. So let's talk about um, some of the industries that we see uh, human trafficking. So construction, sex trade, and of course that includes the production of child por pornography, which is a particularly um, evil trade that young children, uh, even as the infants, they're not even a year old. Um, mothers have babies, they don't have means to care for them, and the baby becomes a commodity that can be sold. Um, hospitality and tourism, we see a lot of it there. Domestic workers, uh, maids, cooks, gardeners, a lot of those people are there against their will. They're not able to leave. Manufacturing, the agricultural sector, we see a lot of it there. Military, uh, we see this pri primarily in Africa where children are trafficked uh, to serve as frontline soldiers uh, in these war-torn areas. And one that is particularly um, troubling that I've seen is uh, organs where young children are trafficked, not for their labor or, or any other kind of illegal activity, but for their, their organs that God gave them, their kidneys, their liver, things like that. Um, and the fatality rate of children, these, these uh, organ removals are not done in, in sterile, clean hospitals by trained medical professionals. It's usually in a bathroom uh, with cutlery. So uh, it's... It, just when you don't think it can get any worse, it does. Uh, so I talked about uh, crossing land borders, but we also have intranation trafficking. That is countries that take their own people to traffic them within industries within their own country. And uh, you've got this in Brazil with forced labor farms and factories, Cambodia with sex trafficking. And again, what what we're talking about with intra-country trafficking is Cambodian human traffickers taking Cambodian children from one part of the country to another. So you're not even dealing with international uh, land or sea crossings. It's just within their own country. And as we'll see, um, we have that here in our own country as well, sadly. Um, Ethiopia, we see it in domestic workers. India, uh, forced labor in granite quarries. Uh, you can just imagine what your life would be like uh, as a forced laborer in a granite quarry in India uh, where you're there against your will. In the United Kingdom, we've got criminal gangs that uh, coerce and force kids to carry narcotics for these gangs. And here in the U.S., so it's sad to read this, a lot of this information that you're seeing comes from the 2019 U.S. State Department Trafficking in Persons Report. It's freely accessible on the internet. And I would suggest that you take a look at that and we'll talk about uh, how you can pray for these countries and give you some direction uh, by looking at this report. But in the United States, uh, we have a foster care system, which is great. We want foster care, uh, but sadly, um, it's raided by traffickers and the children are recruited into sex trafficking rings. And then in Yemen, we have child sol uh, soldiers. So in Timor-Leste, uh, and nationwide, the United States takes a 3P approach, prevention, protection, and prosecution. And so this is a training that I just did last month 
um, about how to build task forces. I trained Timorese police and prosecutors on how to come together and cooperate with one another and unify and coalesce around a mission to attack and investigate a particular known target and bring all those loose ends together so that you can put together a prosecutable case that doesn't stop with just charging or arresting someone, but it carries through to the prosecution and conviction of the human trafficker. And here you can see um, Timri's uh, police and prosecutors at this training. And uh, we were particularly gratified about this training because about a week after we finished it, um, several members of the Timorese police forces uh, raided a nightclub in Dili and they, were, they arrested 10 human traffickers, uh, seven from Vietnam and three from Indonesia. Um, and so a lot of what we were able to teach them, they were immediately able to put to use. And that's what I love about the Timorese people is what they lack in resources and equipment is made up for in a desire to learn and a desire to improve. They want us there, they appreciate the United States contribute, contribution, uh, and they, they want to learn. And, and so we saw some very tangible results with that. So how can the church help? First, I would say pray. That's our first response to any kind of problem in life, whether it's the problem in your own heart or an international problem uh, that's huge in scope, like human trafficking. And I would suggest that you look at the tip report and look at the countries and just pray for a particular country. Think about the vulnerable populations. Pray for those vulnerable populations in that particular country. If you're going to pray for Laos or for Myanmar, uh, pray for that country, pray for the people. You don't have to know their names, but you know that they're there. There are vulnerable people in those countries. Pray for the victims that have already been sucked in to this life of pain. Pray for their families. Pray for law enforcement. You have pictures of people in Timor-Leste that are on the front lines battling this. Pray for the police, the border patrol officers, the immigration officers that are dealing with the uh, porous borders that they have and trying to identify these victims before they come in. Pray for the prosecutors that are prosecuting these dangerous uh, international organizations. And I should say, you know, why do people do this? Why do criminals engage in human trafficking? One word, what do you think it is? Money. If drugs are valuable, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, how valuable is a human person? A, a, a boy, a girl, a man, a woman, they're invaluable worth, but it's all about money. How else can the church help? We'll read, know what God's word says about justice, about the sanctity of life the inherent dignity of all people. We've got some verses there. God is known as a God of justice in the Bible. We see that over and over again. God cares about justice. God sees these victims. He's the father to the fatherless. And James 1.27 talks about what is religion pure and undefiled. What does the Bible say about that? It talks about visiting Who? The widows, the orphans, those are your prime vulnerable sections of the population. Young children with no parents that care about them, that love them, that are on the streets. Widows who don't have education, who don't have any job skills. They want to take care of their family. 
They are a vulnerable population, but those are the people that the book of James says that we need to visit and we need to care for. Finally, something that we should all be doing every day is finding our identity in Christ and helping others to do the same. How do we do that? Well, we preach the gospel to yourself. Preach it to yourself. You know, we've heard it preached here, but preach it to yourself when you're driving to school, when you're walking to class, when you're driving to work, when you're at lunch. Preach the gospel to yourself. Reinforce those truths. Because what you're doing is you're shedding your old self and you're taking on the new, and it's every day that we should be doing that. Bolo is a police term. It, says, it means be on the lookout. So what do we want to be on the lookout for? Remember what the UN said at the beginning. The poor, the isolated, the weak. Please don't walk out of here thinking, oh, this is Timor Less problem. It's 10,000 miles away. He's talking about Cambodia and India. This is happening right here in Knoxville, in Tennessee. We have poor, we have isolated, we have weak, and they are vulnerable populations. Human trafficking occurs right here in our own backyard, in our own neighborhoods. Finally, disempowered, excluded, and vulnerable. Remember, that's what the UN report said. Well, people fall prey to human trafficking because they're disempowered. Well, how should we empower them? Do you empower them politically or with money? Where does the true power come from? It comes from our identity in Christ. The church should empower people with the love of Jesus. No amount of money, no political movement or agenda is ever going to replace what our hearts yearn for. Our hearts are always going to be restless until we find our peace with God. And we do that by finding our identity in Christ. The excluded. Well, in Jesus, people find everlasting inclusion. And then finally, the vulnerable. Again, what does James 1.27 say? Who are the vulnerable? The widows and the orphans. We need to visit with them. And so with that, I'm going to call Domingos up. And he will explain this picture. Yeah, I get the ties as well. Yeah. Yeah, we just need one for Jake. It's okay. Thank you. All right, so again, this is my friend, my colleague, Domingo Samaral. Um, speaks four languages, English, Tetsum, Bahasa, Indonesia, and Portuguese. Um, and he is, he's a true friend, and uh, he's a lifelong friend. So w whenever I come back to Tennessee and the miles separate us, we're always going to be close with one another. So, Domingos, if you would, just please speak up and tell them about this, and then Adelina. All right, so... Uh, if there's any questions, I am happy to field any questions. Yes. Yes, it's, it, it, it is accurate what you've read. Uh, local law enforcement, state law enforcement, the FBI understand the uh, vulnerability of particularly sex trafficking crimes that occur during the Super Bowl. Um, during that time period for the whole week, the week before and the week after, um, law enforcement really steps up concerted activity in those areas. Uh, we're not able to get all of it, uh, but we do uh, 
get a lot and are able to save a lot of victims, but we're not able to get to all of them. But it, it is true. There is uh, a lot of sex trafficking that occurs during the Super Bowl because you have a lot of money that is flowing into that particular city. Uh, you've got a lot of hotels within that city. You just have a lot of people, and the human traffickers know that law enforcement is going to be spread very thin. Um, so this is, at times, we bring in other uh, from other states, other FBI agents to zero in on those locations and they are task forces that focus solely on that uh, with the Super Bowl. But that's true, it's been a problem for, for years. I don't see it going away. All we can do is keep fighting it and try and save as many victims as we can. Yes. Well, the first thing is just um, what James 127 says, and that is visit. Be physically present and involved in that family's life. Because what, what ends up happening is they get uh, to such a state of dire financial straits or other pressures that they realize uh, we have nowhere else to go. We don't know what else to do. And it's like these traffickers know. It's like knowing when to cast a fly rod. Right at the right time, they wait that perfect moment to get in there and present this option. What you want to provide to them is a counterbalance to that. Um, help them, be with them. If you get to a point where you think that there is something more than just food and, and, and some financial help will take care of the problem, you need to be, be able to call the police. I mean, we live in Knoxville, so Knox County Sheriff's Office, KPD, they all have well-trained human trafficking investigators let them know that because what you're thinking about is a vulnerable population right they're not victims yet and that's when we want to try and we don't want them to take that next step from being in a vulnerable population to now they're a victim because once they're in that victim stage they're finding them and and rescuing them becomes exponentially harder so that's what I would recommend is one, be that light for them, uh, you know, pray for them, but don't just stop at that. Be in their life. Let them know that someone cares because a lot of them, they're poor, they're isolated and weak. People who have a strong, loving support system of neighbors and friends, that dilutes that poorness, that weakness, that feeling of isolation. So w at a minimum, we can provide uh, a, an a antidote to that just by being present in their lives and knowing that someone cares for them. So uh, you know, who knows? Just constant faithful friendship to that person can lead them to a point where they may say, you know what, I need to talk to you about someone who's been calling me about my 13-year-old daughter. I don't know what to do. It sounds like a really good opportunity and I can't help her. That's when the red flags need to start going up and you say, all right, hold on, let's work with each other and if you need to call law enforcement then you call law enforcement yes um, younger younger girls 
uh, that are just hanging around. Uh, you know, you can start by just looking at, at loitering and things like that. Um, now, does that mean that anyone that, lo that loiters around a gas station or a hotel uh, is a victim of human trafficking? No, but that's an indicator that you can use to be sensitive, and it's, it's just being situa situationally aware and looking at that person and maybe going up and talking to them, or you end up talking to the gas station or the hotel clerk and saying, hey, do you know, you know you've got this, this younger girl hanging out in the bathrooms or outside by the dumpster, you know, what's going on there? Do you know about this? Um, because so many times we, we don't even see those people. We just don't see them. They, they are a fixture of the terrain um, and we, we don't notice them. That's why I say be on the lookout and look out for those things. A lot of them, it's hard to articulate, you know, well, this is what it's going to look like every time. But I do believe that when you see them, uh, you know, on the 27-hour flight over here, Delta, you know, everybody's got movies. They had a five-minute movie on human trafficking on airplanes. And it involved uh, probably an a, a eight-year-old boy. So you're sitting in your chair. The video shows you you're sitting in your airport, air, airline chair, and you see the chair in front of you. And, you know, there's a little gap there. And you see this eight-year-old boy. He turns. He's looking through the gap. And he says please help me. This person, he says he's my uncle, this man next to me, uh, but he's not my uncle. I have not been home in six months. I haven't had a change of clothes, and you can kind of see it's like dingy clothes. Um, he's asleep now, but if he sees me talking with you, it's going to be bad for me. I need help. I mean, that's where it's like served up on a silver platter for you uh, to help someone like that. But don't overlook the obvious. You know, I think that's a great promotion that Delta was doing was to be aware of that. Um, so a lot of it is just being aware of your surroundings and noticing people that you wouldn't have otherwise noticed in the past and talking with them. So, but you can see it's younger girls, they may be dressed in a certain way that, you know, a younger girl, younger girl shouldn't be looking like that, shouldn't be hanging around a gas station or in a hotel lobby doesn't look like there's parents around or maybe there's one man who's sort of overseeing her. Those are all indicators that you've got a human trafficking scenario laid out in front of you. Yes? That's a, that's a great insight because that's what I'm focusing on presently right now in Timor-Leste, which is getting Timorese judges and police not to go after the woman on some piddly immigration crime. You know, she doesn't, she's overstayed or she doesn't have a passport or a visa or something like that. And not going after her for some immigration issue, but going after the people higher up the chain. So that's an issue that we have here. Sometimes those are the easier ones to prosecute, and it's disabusing law enforcement and prosecution, state and federal, to look at that person as the victim. It's true that their presence there may, uh, and their activity may constitute some type of crime, prostitution. But there's someone above that. It's sort of like when, when I prosecuted drug traffickers, I could have the guy on the street corner who's selling just a little bit. I'd, that guy is a, 
a piece of a much larger puzzle. And we don't stop with that. We actually engage someone like that and that person helps us get to the real evil culprits. Uh, and so it's not enough for, to just look at someone and say, oh, well now you're involved in prostitution and we're gonna prosecute you and we're, you're poor, you're not gonna have a legal defense to mount and it's going to be an easy case, open and shut. But part of the training that we do for law enforcement is to get them to steer away from the easy because we want to protect the victims and what you're looking at right there is a victim. What you want to find is the person who is trafficking that person. Um, so it's just disabusing law enforcement of this notion of, well, I have someone who's committing a crime in my presence, I can prosecute them, I can arrest them. Um, we want to go after the real troublemakers. So, yes? I think you're always going to have uh, trafficking going on. I mean, we've got the Central American countries of these migrations that are coming up, but you're going to have both the human smuggling and human trafficking. Um, the, the border is, is really overwhelming. Um, when you look at the, the quantity of people coming in and the limited number of people, U.S. government, that are working to try and ascertain who is who and what story checks out and what one is completely false. Um, you know, you've got two things going on there. You've got the, the laws of the state that are being violated that they're looking at, but then you've got human trafficking as well, which is arguably a bigger problem that actually encompasses the former of crossing borders illegally. So, um, yeah, it's difficult, uh, but that's... You know, Timor-Leste has a very small border compared to our border, but even that border is difficult to police. Um, and yeah, you've got people coming in that say, I'm a, an uncle, I'm an older cousin, and they're with me. And if you don't have time to get down and talk with that person, the smaller child, and see what indicators may be there that that story's not checking out, it becomes very easy to just say, okay, go on through. And what just happened is uh, a stable of victims have now crossed over from one country into the other and they go all over the nation. But it's, it, the, the southern border is a very difficult situation for us right now. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah. um, can we thank Dave? I know we could, we could ask a question about that. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone U.